RTHK. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Ocean Terminal was opened in Chimsa Choi by Britain's Princess Margaret in 1962. A few years later, in 1969, businesswoman Mohini Gidamol would open a 200-square-foot shop with a friend, selling silver and some antique items. The shop had a fireplace and they named it Townhouse, a growing luxury goods business that Mrs Gidamol would run until the 1990s when it was taken over by her son Ravi and grew much more. Moini Gudamal is from a Sindhi Indian family and was born in 1937 in Manila in the Philippines. I was born in the Philippines, raised in the Philippines, went through the Second World War in the Philippines. Oh, I love the Philippines. It's such a beautiful place. And went to school and then when it was time to go to college, my father said, look, I'm going to take you four girls to India. I don't think so much about the college, though he was very insistent that his daughters and his children would all go to university. And yet in those days, our culture said, girls, no. You go to your basic 12th standard in India, and that's it. Then you get married. You get prepared for marriage. But my father said, no, all my children have to be educated. But he wanted us to go to India because he wanted to find a partner for his sons and his daughters. (laughs) So that's when we went to India in 1955. And so I can I ask when you were born? Is that okay? 37, sure. Yes. I'm 80. 80. I finished 80 in December. <laughs> so you remember, so when in being in Manila, so you'd have been very, very young, but you remember the Second World War? Certain things I do remember, but I think a lot of it is what has been fed to me by my elder brother and sister. You know, we did this, we did this, but there are certain homes. I remember our beautiful house. I remember my mango tree. I remember jumping off the tree with the kid, with, with my brothers and sisters. Those things I do remember. I remember my friends because I've kept in touch with them, my school friends. And, and a lot of Indians who lived in the Philippines, we grew up together. So those memories are there and I see them. I go to Mandala every year. So I, I keep in touch with all my friends. When you were young, do you still have photographs or of that time? No, everything got bombed and destroyed during the war. And we were so young. We had nothing left with us. Because when, in 1944, December or 45 January, I remember the Japanese had taken over our house where we were living in. They came in and said, out. And bombs were just dropping all around us. My sister, my youngest sister was only two months old. She was born in November. So my mother, we all had to leave. So my father made for us little rack sacks, which we carried on our shoulder. And we just left the house and walked to this big field where a lot of the Indian families and everybody were just assembled there. There were thousands of people there. Out of Manila? In Manila itself. But we walked away from our house, maybe an hour away. And we decided, okay, it's getting late. We'll just stay in this field and relax for the night. And then we'll get up. And from there, we went down to one of the big Manila hospitals. And we all stayed at the basement there for about a week. And then we went back to see if any of our homes were there because my father had many houses. But there was one where I was born because we were all born at home that was still standing in Tondo, Manila. And we all lived there, but we had a big three-story home. And all my cousins and all who were still saved from the war, they all came. We were 100 people staying in that house for a month until they all managed to find places of their own after the war. Your father, was he first generation in the Philippines? Uh, my father, first generation, yeah. He, he left India when he was 17. He worked his passage to Manila cleaning the decks of a ship. And he went there and he worked for a very large Indian company, Pomo Brothers, 
and they were one of the largest in Hong Kong in the Philippines. And my father was working for him. My father had seven siblings. There were eight boys altogether. They were part of eight children, all boys. And he was the first one to go to the Philippines and work with this company. Then his other brother came and worked with the same company. After four years, my father decided, you know what, let's open our own. But this company said, please stay on with us, because he was a very good salesman. I think I got that from him. (laughs) (laughs) And he was very good at sales. So he told his brother and his other elder brother, whom he asked to come from India, to set up their own company, G. Asimal and Company. And that was when it started. Then two years later, he left Portmore Brothers, and he carried on with his company. Now, if you notice, we tend to take our father's first name as our last name. Like Gidemal is my husband's our father's first name. Is that right? Now, why is that? Because we have a common surname, like Mebubani, Sakranis, if you've heard those names before. Now, most of the Indians who left India and came to settle in places like the Philippines or in China or Japan, if they were to meet people, they would say, oh, we are Mebubanis. Okay, which Mebubani are you? Who's your father? That's when they decided to take their father's first name as their surname. So that's my father's first name. And Gidamal, which I am today, is my husband's father's first name. So, so is that tradition continuing? It's carried on a lot, a lot. But now I think people are starting to change a bit again because people are more familiar with names and things like that. But uh, a lot of them. And especially in the south of India, if you notice, they always use the first names as their surnames. So with, would you say that in the Philippines and in Hong Kong, there were a set number of what you could call Indian settler families? As oh, in- settler families. Oh, yes, quite a lot today. I mean, you would find so many who are already third generation. Like in our family, for example, my father being the first generation to settle there. And then my brothers, his, their children, their grandchildren. So I'm talking about four generations. They're all settled in the Philippines. They like it there. Business is, well, you have to learn to adapt to the system of business anywhere you are. And I know my husband could never adapt to the system of the Philippines because, as you know, a lot of corruption takes place. So was it a trading business? Trading. We are Sindhis and we are Bibans. You know, we have a category of Bibans and Amals. And and the Brahmins, as you know, they're more of the religious class. And uh, the Bibans are more trading people. So we left India because we wanted to trade. Well, those who were judges and lawyers, who were Amals, they stayed on because they stayed on as teachers, lawyers, judges, whatever, doctors. They're more professionals. We were traders, basically. Describe your childhood in Manila. You lived in a big house? Big house. Oh, it was beautiful. You know, we never got on a plane to get anywhere because I'm going back 1937, 40. We stayed all our summer holidays in Manila itself or in the Philippines because then we'd go up to Baguio. Are you familiar with the place? And we had a beautiful house there. Pink room, blue room, yellow room, you name it. We had it all. It was really beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful home. My father had lovely big homes where we lived in. So we'd go up to Baguio. We'd go horseback riding. We'd go rowing on the lake. It was beautiful. And we loved it. But you know what? Because there were about six old Indian families who came to settle in the Philippines about the same time my father did. And their children, we grew up together as a community. And we loved each other. And they're the ones I keep in touch with all the time. And we didn't need anybody else. We were so happy. As you would know, in the olden days, in any part of the world, as long as you had friends around you, family around you, you were very contented. We were very contented. Did you have horses? Or? We didn't have horses, but there, were, there was a place where you could ride ponies and things like that. But we were not horses. 
people. As a, as a young Cindy woman, what were you, I mean, were you, did you have certain hobbies? Were there certain expectations in terms of education? Uh, hobbies, in the sense, I was more of a sports person. I preferred to play. I played basketball, even if it was so short. I loved 10-pin bowling. We used to go swimming all the time. And, but that was it. No cooking, no sewing. I didn't want that. To me, I was more a businesswoman than anything else. But my sisters were. Because you were sort of trained. Every time we had a holiday, my mother would have things drawn out for us to embroider so that she was training us how to become a perfect wife and a perfect mother. That's what she was trying to do. That was basically what she would impress on us, that, look, you've got to learn how to cook, you've got to learn how to do this, you've got to learn how to do that. That is what they were trying to make us do as we were growing up, the girls. And the boys just carried on their work with their father. So you're a young girl in uh, Manila, and then later on you go to... Was that India for the first time? First time. Yeah. So you went by ship? Or? We went by ship, the Carthage. I think it was the Carthage in 1955. And stopped in Hong Kong, stopped in Sri Lanka, Colombo, and then to Bombay. How old were you? 1955, 37 I was born. I was 17-something, almost 18. What was your first impression of India? Horrid. Couldn't stand the place. It was filthy, it was dirty, you could see all this red pond, you know, people used to chew pond and spit on the walls. Oh. For the first six months we cried and told our father to take us back to Mandela. He took my younger sister back, she was born seven years after me, she was only ten years old. So he took her back because she just couldn't stand it. But the other ones were ready to get married and I went to college. So you went to college where? In Bombay, Sapphire College. To, um, that was an all-round education or specific studies? Well, specific in the first... Uh, well, it was an all-round initially, but I went in to do economics. But then after one year, I found it a bit too tough, so I just did psychology. So you, I would say that your father was very outward-looking for his daughters. He was, he was. That's what I keep telling, because I have a lot of nieces here in Hong Kong. My first cousin's children, their children, they can't believe that my father sent us to college in those years. We're talking about 55, and he insisted that we all met. My sister went to college in Manila, and she did accounting. She was a brilliant person. They offered so many jobs in India, but my father said, no, you've got to get married. That was it. As I told you earlier, we all went to India to get married. And what was the expectation in terms of marrying? Were you presented with various other families? Uh, Yes, my two brothers and two sisters were presented, introduced, and then they had to say yes and get married. I wasn't. I fought. (laughs) So I came back to uh, Manila, and then a year later I met my husband in Hong Kong. So that was your choice? That was my choice, yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me about coming from Manila to Hong Kong. Oh, I loved Hong Kong because I loved the hustle and the bustle of Hong Kong. Hong Kong had a spirit and a fight to it. You know, Manila was very laid back. And, okay, when you're in school, you're with your friends, you're growing up, it's fine. But after I finished my college and I went back to Manila, what was there for me to do? So I thought, you know, when I came to Hong Kong, I loved Hong Kong. I loved the spirit of Hong Kong. And within three or four months, I met my husband. So we were courting for a year, and then we got married. And what brought you to Hong Kong initially? We have an office. My father had an office here, and my brother lived here. So I said, okay, I'm coming to Hong Kong, and I'll stay with my brother for a year. So I stayed here for a year, and that's how I met my husband. So you were just intending to come to Hong Kong for one year? uh, No, no, not really. Only for three or four months. The shop, our house burned down in Manila, and everything that I brought back from India, they were still in suitcases. So my father said, okay, go to Hong Kong and shop. So I came to Hong Kong to shop, and then I met my husband. So that's what brought me here. Actually, to shop. <laughs> to replace everything to that replace you'd lost? Everything that wow. I'd lost, yeah. Okay. That's basically what I did, yeah. And uh, what year was that then? 1961. 
Describe to me your first impressions in 1961 of Hong Kong. I loved, as I said to you earlier, I just loved the hustle and the bustle, and I kept you busy, and there were things you do, and lots to see. I wasn't exposed to a lot of that in Manila. And as I said, again, I met my husband. He was a friend of my brother's, who's passed away since. And they had a group called the White Elephants, and they would meet every week for lunch. And with the women, we would meet once a month. And that's where I met him. And then I have a very dear friend of mine who lived in New York around the same time that my husband lived in New York. And she said to me, Moini, I honestly think he's the right person for you. So, you know, we started to meet each other. And his friend also told him, because he was already 32 years old, and he said, I think this is the right person for you. So we were sort of eyeing each other at the same time, you know, with the intention of maybe he could be my husband. And that's exactly what happened. That's how I met him. And then we started to go out for about six, seven months. And New Year's Eve, we were out together till four or five o'clock in the morning. And then he called me the next day and said, and I said, you know what? He hasn't proposed to me. I've been around for nine months with him. And so I said, I'm going back to Manila. And he said, no, stay, stay a while. And why? Because he had written a letter to his mother at that time or sent her a telegraph saying, I've met Moini and I want to get married. And he just, out of respect, which I thought was wonderful, to tell his mother that he wanted to get married to me. And he said to me, wait a few days. In case he hadn't heard from his mom, he would then tell me, get married. But he did hear from his mother, and he did call me two days later and say, please, let's get married. That's how we met. And your husband was a, a big trader, or what was his area? Also trading, mm. trading. Basically textiles, very much what my father used to do in the Philippines, textiles. Any particular type, cotton or...? Silk, a lot of silk, and a lot of textiles from America for suiting material. That's what they were very big in, suiting material. And so you were seeing this all around, you know, in terms of how you go into business later. Mm-hmm. You're, you're seeing this all around you. Well, I, mean, well, I used to also help him in the office. I used to go down there twice a week to help him with his basic accounts, you know, just simple accounting. That's what I used to do. Then I played cards twice a week, and then eventually I got bored with things like that. And then... As the children were born, and um, they went to kindergarten, and actually starting townhouses, really, I must credit my friends for that, because I was very busy with Mohan, and he had a showroom in the Ocean Terminal, where he used to manufacture it. He had a factory in, in Kuntong, making bedspreads, the Indian striped bedspread, beautiful bedspreads. So he had a showroom for his customers. So I used to work there also twice a week. So that's also interesting because that's the time when we've still got manufacturing in Hong Kong. That's right. And you should have seen the guy who would uh, press the... They'd come out on a roll and they'd come down and he would be a man pressing this big ironing machine with his feet going up and down and the whole thing would roll. Wow, I used to look at him and say, how can you do that for hours and hours on end? That's where... Kuntong was a manufacturing place in those days. Every building you went to had a lot of manufacturing. Tell me about your wedding. Oh, you know what Indian weddings are like, right? <laughs> They're a week of celebrations, but we didn't because Mohan just flew down. He couldn't leave his office, really. He was a one-man show. So it was in Manila? Where did you get married? Oh, you did? Because oh, you his, went back to India? His mother was there, and she said, I'm not coming back to Hong Kong until I get... His sister had gone down to get married, and she hadn't gotten her daughter married yet. And in our Indian custom, if a mother has taken her daughter to India and come back without her being married, that's it. You won't find a boy for your girl. Obviously, she's seen so many, and she's rejected, or they're rejected. So mother said, no, I'm staying here. So we got married in June 1962, and his mother and daughter, a sister were there. We got married at the Mohan flew in the day before we got married. We got married in June 11th. He came in June the 10th, and we, he flew out on June the 14th. And, and, I, and where was it? Bombay. 
So, it was, but you say it went on for several days. Well, that's what. So we, I had to have the celebration without him. Like we had the Mendy, you know, where we paint our hands. I had that. Then the flower ceremony at our home because my father had a house in India. So we had that ceremony over there. And then he came in just the day before where he had to go through some prayers before he gets married. And I have the same prayers at my house. And then the next day we were married, June 11th. And he left three days later. And I couldn't fly with him because I had a ticket in my maiden name. And my passport didn't change, so we couldn't change our tickets in those days. So he flew in one day, I flew in the next day, but I got stuck in Bangkok because of Typhoon Wanda. I remember that so well. I could not get into Hong Kong. All the flights were canceled. So I had to stay in Bangkok for a day and then came to Hong Kong. Gosh, so you arrived in the wake of Typhoon Wanda then? I did, I did. Was there a lot of destruction? Uh, in our house, where we were staying at that time on Taihang Road, there was a big, big, big hole on the ground, so cars couldn't go up and down Taihang Road for a couple of days. So you're a young mum, gradually, and then you decide to uh, yourself My to... My friend, as you were asking me earlier, she uh, is a designer, and she said, you know, Moini, I'm so bored. Let's do something. And I said, well, look, I'm busy four days of the week. So she said, oh, let's just open a shop, an antique shop, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, as long as you work two days a week and I'll work two days a week. And she said, I've got a friend who is also an antique collector. Her name was Armis Hornemik. And her husband was um, a member of the Yacht Club. He used to sail a lot. So Armis was there. So we said, okay. So we put in $10,000 each, just to let you know. 30000 Oh, what was the year? Business, 1969, because they were in kindergarten. Then I said, okay, I can work until 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and then come back. And so three of us put in $10,000, and we got the place done up, and we had 10000 as our cash reserve, and we started a business. And where, where was the shop? Ocean Terminal. Now, again, getting the Ocean Terminal was not easy, but because my husband knew Carlo Wharf very well, and he had a big showroom in the Ocean Terminal, so he managed to get at the shop just next to Charlotte Horseman. So what was Charlotte Horseman? Charlotte Horseman was a lady called Charlotte Horseman who loved antiques. And in fact, I think she's still alive. She's about 90-something years old, and I bump into her once in a while in Hong Kong. And she started this beautiful antique shop. And we managed to get a very small, basically 200 square feet small store, just two shops after hers. And uh, I used to bump into her. She carried on for a very long time till... I would say, 80s or something. And then eventually she had a partner called Gregory. Then she left Hong Kong for a while. He carried on Charlotte Horseman. And we were there for a long, long time. But we had to change. I had to change my business because trying to sell antique silver, you'd have one customer maybe in a month or something. So you had to bring other products into the... So what was the idea? Antiques, uh, is it the, so a wide range, or was it uh, specifically Indian? or No. Mostly Chinese silver, because the armies knew a lot about Chinese silver, so she'd go down to Hollywood Road and hunt for all this old silver, and she could recognize a good thing and read the hallmark. I had to learn all that, because I, I was not big in silver. And she would clean it and polish it and put it up there. Beautiful stuff. And then eventually I found that, you know, we really need to bring in some other stuff in, which I eventually did, and I'd get it from my husband's export, because then he started to to general export and make things for different parts of the world, Germany and all, beautiful stuff, also with silver. And I would sell that stuff, and that would just go like hotcakes because they were cheap. Then eventually we branched out. You know, we'd go to Macau and buy headboards, antique headboards, antique uh, Chinese uh, wedding baskets, and it would, you know, we did do very well. And then we opened another one in the ocean terminal. But by then, after three months, Amis decided she didn't like all that rubbish, as she called it, in the shop because she liked to keep it on the antiques. 
And I said, look, we have to get our bread and butter. We have to pay our bills, and we have to bring it. So she left, and she opened her own shop in the ocean terminal upstairs, but she closed it within the year. It didn't work. So you build from antique silver? Yeah. Headboards from Macau, what else? And baskets, and I wish I kept some of the beautiful tile, blue and white tile for myself, which I didn't, because again, thinking blue, business. Blue and white tile? Beautiful paintings that they used to do in China, and I used to buy them from, uh, you know, Chinese art and craft? They had a wholesale department upstairs in that building in Simsachery, uh, Shah House. That's where Chinese art and crafts were. So they had a very big wholesale department. They used to bring in beautiful stuff from China, blue and white tiles painted. And then they would have little dishes and bowls and then aprons and uh, then cloisonne. I used to do a lot of cloisonne and snuff bottles. I even had snuff bottles made with Nixon's face. <laughs> I had it done when he had a meeting in China, right? And I had that. And one day we had gone to Frankfurt and my husband had a stand and I put my snuff bottles there. I had one customer bought 5,000 snuff bottles from me. Five thousand from America. He just wanted those. That was one of my first big trade on snuff bottles, and I started to learn a lot about snuff bottles. So but you, I never dealt in antiques, no, antiques, because I really had, didn't know that too much about it. So you would look at things, you know, as you say, in um, China Arts and Crafts, or but with the snuff bottles, were you then, did you then start having, would that have been too early for Shenzhen? I mean, where, where were you having them made? Here, there was two Chinese factories here that were making snuff bottles and local Chinese uh, dishes, I have the name at home, but in the moment it just slips my mind. And yet the other day, my friend went there, and the grandson of the old man said, Oh, you know Mrs. Giddemore, townhouse. And I said, I used to go to his factory, and he used to be in Castle Peak Road, if I'm not mistaken. I used to go there, look at all the dishes. I even made a dinner set for Danny Kay. Tell me what. <laughs> Danny Kay walked into the store one day, and I was there, and we had all the samples around, and he said, Oh, I'd like to make a dinner set. And this. I didn't recognize him at that time, and then eventually I did, and he was talking. He said, No, I'd like to make a dinner set for 24 people. And he wanted the uh, orange and blue long life. It had the long life in there, and then the orange and blue design around there. Everything is tickety-boo, tickety-boo, tickety-boo. Everything is tickety-boo on such a dreamy day who could be a snickety-poo, snickety-poo, snickety-poo. With the sky so blinkety-blue, it causes one to say, Bless mankind, including my attackers. I'm inclined, the feeling is there's so a jolly well there. It's absolutely crackers. Incidentally, how about you? How do you do? Everything is tickety-boo on such a dreamy peaches and creamy day. So I took it to Yutong. That was the name of the factory. Y-U-E-T-T-U-N-G. They were out in Castle Fish. Yutong. Yutong, mm -hmm. yeah. And then I went down to Yutong and ordered set for him and shipped it out to him. And was Danny Kay pleased? Very happy. He sent me three letters. I wish I'd kept the letters saying, excellent, and people enjoyed my dinner service at home. <laughs> Did he sing for you? No, he didn't. It was too small a shop with too many people around for him to say anything. So you're in Ocean Terminal, you then expand. So you had a mix of, so you were having stuff made, you say yourself. From the China Park, yes, I did that all the time. And But then when we expanded to a bigger store, and by then it was just getting a bit too much for me, because I had to do a lot of traveling here and there. So then I oh, met... So you would travel abroad travel as well? Some, for the business. For yeah. the business, and go to the fairs at Frankfurt, because then by then I had expanded into crystal. So I had to look for nice crystal and silver. I used to buy from all the big British companies. I'd go to Frankfurt just to look at their display of silver. Why did you decide on the name Townhouse? 
I don't know. We just sat together, the three of us, and so we decided to put a, our design was such because we put a fireplace, and we thought it's a very cozy atmosphere. So that's the reason why we said, come in, be relaxed, be very comfortable. That's townhouse. Yeah, that's it's a, and it's also a very easy name to remember. It's a very easy name to remember. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. It starts, as you say, in two hundred. Two. So it was literally a two hundred square foot. Two hundred square feet shop, really. Yeah. And then as we wanted to expand, a friend of my husband's told me, he said, you know, Moini, why don't you get things like Royal Dalton, Royal Crown Derby, Wedgwood, Waterford, Crystal. That way you don't have to travel so much and spend so much time because if you don't want to travel, you can just go into the catalog. You're basically importing the same stuff, you know, Waterford stemware. So you get the Lismore, the Alana, the Kylemore, all the different patterns that they make and sell them in your shop. And then we got Yadro the Spanish bone china figurines, and really lovely stuff. They just went. People would come on the ship, get off, come to the shop, which we had at the end, which was the big 2,000-square-foot store, and they would just pick up. So that's how we got Yadro and Waterford Juices to go out of the store. Then eventually things changed, you know. The younger generation want different things. Now, it was interesting. As you say, you, you went off to study economics. You open a business. So these aren't... I would have said not normal tracks necessarily for Cindy daughters. You're very correct there. It is not normal tracks, but as I feel, felt, my father always treated me like a son, and he encouraged me to do what I felt I wanted to do, which was very, very good. You know, like the only person he never encouraged was my elder sister because she really wanted to teach and be an accountant. She was absolutely brilliant. But he said, no, my first daughter. I think he was scared if he allowed her to go out and work as a Sydney girl. It would affect the marriage plans of his second daughter, who didn't want to go to college at all and wanted to get married and have a family. And then I was there, and then my younger sister. So I think that is why my father did not want her to pursue the career that she wanted to pursue. Difficult. Yeah, exactly, very difficult. So what did she end up doing? She got married had kids, was teaching all the whole family. They had a family, again, of 20, 30 children who'd come to her for lessons, and that's what she did. And she her, she worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta because she got married and lived in Calcutta. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So she did a lot of that. And then she was teaching in a kindergarten, then up to grade one, just for two hours in the morning because she had a lot of work. Not easy, not easy. She didn't have a very easy life. Can you tell me about being part of the Cindy community in Hong Kong? Could you tell me, for example, how you celebrate Diwali? We always celebrate Diwali with puja, our prayers at the office. They always say you pray to God as Lachmi, as we know, and that's for, I wouldn't only say money, but everything, good health, good life, making money. So it's always done at the office, and then at night we'd come to the house and do a little prayers at home also. They have it at the Hindu temple. They celebrate it there, but we never went there. We just did our office and that. And we'd do the prayers, and after the prayers, we'd have a big open house, open office for all our friends and clients and bankers and all to come and just celebrate with us. In what sort of way? Food? Food, food, food. The (laughs) Indians, as you know, it's food, food, food. And what kind of food? Uh, We'd make samosas, which they all love, and we'd make lots, a lot of little fried food, samosas, pakoras, and... uh, Nothing, just finger food, basically. Mrs. Moeny Giddemol there. Moeny Giddemol founded and ran the luxury goods business Townhouse until the 1990s. Mrs. Giddemol's son, Ravi, would modernise Townhouse and expand it beyond recognition as a Hong Kong-based distributor of international tabletop and home accessories brands. But he takes his hat off to his mother 
for her innate ability to sell and source beautiful products from different parts of the world. Next week, I'll be talking to veteran anti-tobacco campaigner Dr Judith Mackay, who for decades has tirelessly taken on the tobacco industry across Asia to bring down smoking numbers and stop children from starting. She was born in the north of England, but has made Hong Kong her home since the late 1960s. So there was a window of opportunity right through the 80s and the early 90s, I would say, to visit countries and to really help them sort of get up and running. And I think... The tobacco industry had said it themselves. They said it in the way back in the 80s and 90s. They would have quotes like, what is it we want? We want Asia. You know, thinking about smoking statistics in China is like dreaming of the limits of outer space. They were after Asia because of the huge populations, the big male smoking rates who could be converted to the Marlboro cigarettes and the very low smoking rates in women who could be persuaded to smoke. Dr Judith Mackay there, who will be joining me for Hong Kong Heritage next weekend. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.